If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When the Mary Rose was pulled from the Solent, you could be forgiven for thinking that what had been salvaged was just a pile of old wood. After all, where were its sails, masts and rigging? And importantly, why was there only half of it? However, over the years that have followed, incredible developments in conservation and analysis have transformed this load of old wood into a precious historical resource which has allowed us to discover more than we could have ever imagined. I'm Emily Briffitt and in this new History Extra podcast series we're marking the 40th anniversary of the raising of the Mary Rose by delving back into its fascinating history and uncovering the secrets this Tudor shipwreck has hidden out of reach for more than four centuries. We'll reveal why the discovery of the Mary Rose has been so influential in shaping and challenging our understanding of the Tudor era. From the heat of naval battle to the manoeuvres of royal politicking and explore what we can learn from the treasures found in the murky depths. In this final episode, we're exploring the extraordinary afterlife of the Mary Rose, delving into the incredible conservation efforts made to ensure this Tudor treasure trove can be preserved for future generations. To help us make sense of the complex processes behind keeping the wreck alive, I spoke once again to Dr Alex Hildred the Mary Rose's current Head of Research and Curator of Ordnance, as well as their Head of Interpretation, Christopher Dobbs. I'll also be introducing you to a new character in our Mary Rose lineup, Professor Eleanor Schofields, who's in charge of the care and conservation of the collection. Now, you might be thinking, hold on, this is a history podcast. Why are we looking into recent science and engineering efforts? Well, it's actually far more relevant to the story of the Mary Rose than you might think. With that in mind, let's hear from Eleanor. Science and engineering has been absolutely critical for the Mary Rose right from the beginning, from finding it to raising it. And then once we had the materials excavated, understanding what they were, how they changed, trying to understand what would happen to them over time, what environments they need to be in, 
um, what treatments we do. And then actually now, if you think that some of the treatments that we've done were maybe 40 years ago, things change over time. So the materials change, but also science changes all the time, right? The techniques that we can do, the way that we understand them gets better and better every day. So it's like a nonstop thing of looking after this collection. When the timbers of the Mary Rose broke the surface of the Solent's waters on the 11th of October 1982, it was the first time that the ship had been seen above water in 437 years. But though this heralded a huge celebration, the remains of the Tudor warship were in a precarious position. When the Mary Rose was raised, she was completely wet because she came out of the water. And how she looked then is a little bit deceptive as to what was happening underneath the surface. So whilst the wood actually is in incredible condition for everything it's been through, for how old it is, for how long it's been buried, for being in the marine environment, there had been some degradation. So where some of the wood had been lost it was being swelled up by water. And so as soon, typically, as soon as things are excavated, that's it becomes a real race against time to make sure you take the steps that you don't cause irreparable damage. So in the case of the Mary Rose, that meant she had to be kept completely wet and not left to dry out. But how do you keep a wreck wet when it's not underwater? So when the Mary Rose came into dry dock number three in the historic dockyard, she was sprayed with water to keep her wet and stop her drying out. It was also cold water to stop any bacterial activity. We didn't want any of that. So just to kind of keep her in a steady state while the next steps were determined. And this was done by looking at the wood, looking, doing tests on it, analysing, understanding the degradation of the wood, and then looking at different treatments that could be done in particular, we looked at other projects around the world, things like the Bremen Cog in Bremerhaven in Germany, Wasser in Stockholm, because they had all come before and they'd started doing treatments. So typically what you want to do with the wood is put something into it, a consolidant, which then will replace the water that's kind of acting as a swelling agent to the wood, so that when you do dry it out, there's something there to support it. And in our case... Following the other projects that I just mentioned, we used polyethylene glycol or PEG, as we call it, because it's much easier to say. And this is a really slow process. So you're gradually replacing the PEG with the water there, um, starting with you, you have different types of PEG. So PEG is a polymer, basically. So it starts off with a unit and that then is repeated and it can form different chain lengths. And you start off with a, a smaller chain because then that can get deep into the wood because it's not very big. And then you move up to a larger chain. And there was different considerations with these. That, and the spraying in total to give you a kind of gauge took 19 years. So those two different grades of peg, it was 19 years. And then we started the drying in 2013. Again, it was really important for us to get this right. So lots of work was done on test pieces of Mary Rose wood, looking at if you've done this peg treatment and if you dry it in these conditions, what's the result? And trying lots of different combinations to work out what would be the best one for the Mary Rose. Um, so we started that in the drying in 2013. Um, this, to, to say when the ship was completely dry is a, is a bit impossible. You know, to answer that question, I'd, I'd have to have sampled the entire ship, which obviously is not feasible. <laughs> Pretty much the ship is dry now. And now it's a case of us monitoring it, looking chemically and physically how the ship is changing and making sure we keep everything as stable as possible. 
and it seems that there were more challenges than you might initially expect in caring for the ship. Let's zoom right in on these processes. Lots of people remember the Mary Rose being sprayed and it gets referred to as the kind of spraying phase and dry phase. Um, but there's actually a lot more to it than that in terms of the the fact that we, you know, just even setting up the system, setting up the, the spray system, checking all the nozzles, all the filters, the heating, the cooling, the pumps, you know, it's a big kind of maintenance project to keep all of that going. And then the different stages we had of the peg spraying, which some people will know about, but the first peg that we sprayed with was a liquid at room temperature. So it was fine. It could just be put through the system. The next one was actually a solid, so it needed to be heated. So you have all these extra elements that come in. Also, if you bear in mind, it's not really a clean lab that we're working in. It's a dry dock and The ship was on the cradle, which was then on the barge deck, and then we were spraying things. Obviously, this was not a perfectly clean surface, so things would come off into it. The the team working in the ship hall at the time would be looking at at nozzles that were spraying out, checking the spray pattern, checking it was even, because you didn't want one part of the ship getting more peg than the other. When it came to the drying phase, we had full laser scans of the ship done. We measured to make sure that the drying ducts that we put in, that some people will remember these black tubes that were all around the ship, they were delivering air to the ship and they were positioned so that we were getting consistent temperature, humidity and air velocity at every point around the ship. So there's there's a lot of work that's gone into it and all of it is just to try and keep things as as stable as possible and ensure that we've done the best we can to keep the Mary Rose there for as long as possible. When the Mary Rose was raised and brought into dry dock number three, it was initially being sprayed in what was essentially a big tent, but it now sits within a giant ship hall. This provides an enclosed, protective environment and, away from the public eye, there's a huge amount of pipework moderating air temperature and humidity, acting almost like a critical care unit for the ship and its collection. So, what would have happened if the Mary Rose didn't have this vital life support system? If when the Mary Rose was raised, absolutely nothing had been done, you would be looking at a very different ship today. Timbers would have shrunk, there would have been cracking, there would have been warping and twisting, and all of this would have affected the structure. There are very few elements on the ship which are individual and not dependent on something next to it. So, for example, if you look at the decking, there'll be sections where there's kind of layers built up. And if something underneath has gone or doesn't quite connect on anymore, it will affect everything else there. So it's only bias taking these steps of doing the treatments, looking at the structure, putting supports in where they've been needed, that we're able to display the ship as it is today. Now, before we move on, one of the fundamental features many people who have seen the Tudor shipwreck point out is that there is only half of it left. I spoke to Alex to find out what actually happened to the rest of it and what this can tell us about the importance of conservation. People come and look at the ship and they see half a ship, and that's because that's what what we've got. And that is because the ship, when she rolled over, and this is not a big, deep Titanic sinking, this is 12 metres of water, the ship is 12 metres wide, and she basically rolled over. Water entered through gun ports, and that flooded her and and destabilised her, and she 
went on her starboard side into the very, very soft, lovely preservative muds of the Solent. And so the upper part of the ship, the port side, was proud of the seabed, even though she's made a nice little hole for herself because she's obviously quite heavy with all of the guns on it and everything else. And because the gun port lids were all open on the um, port side, which is uppermost, every time the tides went across, they dropped all the sediment that's been carried within the tides, which really filled the inside really quickly with this beautiful anaerobic sediment, which is a bit like cold cream. So it's like putting your hand in cold cream, maybe a bit harder, a bit, bit like butter that's just the butter knife can go through it and the butter that gets too soft, but c- cooler than that. So very, very thick and gloopy and that, that preserved uh, everything. But the bits of wood that were above were both buffeted by any uh, tidal action because it's scouring if it's got sediment in it. It's that the sand, you know, you've got sand as well as a soft mud um, and also any marine boring organisms. So basically fell apart. You know, the the port side fell apart and we have very little evidence of it. And it wasn't only the ship itself that was at risk. You see the same thing with objects. If an object's been unburied, so this is why during between diving seasons we'd cover objects up or you'd try and excavate a complete area and then put sandbags on it and then maybe a membrane and rolling membrane down the deck was really difficult in order to preserve it because you had these rolls. It's like rolling carpet down a warehouse, you know, and and it's flapping in in the tide and things. But you could see it with objects that have been left exposed. So you'd have a longbow that tip would be sticking out of the sediment and you could see that it was eaten by marine sort of they're like worms but they're not shipworm they're, they're smaller and they're much smaller than that but you know these tiny little patterns within it that gradually just just decays you know the, the things decay the raising of the mary rose in 1982 may have been the moment everyone remembers from this long and arduous process but the decade before had seen the salvage of over 19,000 objects from bowls jerkins and knit combs to human remains. And, having been underwater for almost four and a half centuries, these also needed taking care of. Alongside the ship, we raised lots of different objects and they vary in terms of the material that they're made of. So inorganic, so metals, gold, silver, pewter, um, organics, leather, lots of wood, obviously, um, human remains, animal remains, Uh, We've got textiles. There's just a huge range. And they are all different materials and have different properties, so require different treatments and care. Typically, everything that was raised was, first of all, put into a water wash. And this was to get rid of salt, so sodium chloride salt from the sea, and also just any kind of debris. You know, if you think from being in the sea, it's not it's not a clean science experiment that it's come from. It's not pure distilled water. There's all the sediments as well. So all of this was, was washed off. Quite a lot of the materials, that's really what they needed um, just for these things to be washed off and then to be control dried. The wood typically needed some intervention because some of the degradation that was had happened. The leather is the same. Um, But some of the other materials, they may have just received a wash to start off with, but now as time has progressed and we understand more of what's in the material, we're having to do more treatments now, or at least initially, more analysis to understand what is going on. And each of these precious objects required its own complex and unique treatments. When the materials were raised, 
some of the treatments that were needed were quite obvious. So typically where it was really clear that some of the material had degraded and been lost, you know, you know then that it's going to need some intervention to ensure that it's stable over time. The thing that wasn't obvious straight away is understanding everything that has got into the object. The best way to think about this is that all the collection has essentially been marinating in seawater for hundreds of years. And there is all kinds of stuff in seawater, all kinds of different elements and compounds. And most of the materials, if they weren't porous to start off with, they may have then become so because of degradation, or they may have cracks that are formed in them. And all of this creates pathways for stuff to get in. Alongside everything from the seawater, you also have the collection itself. So for example, you could have a section in the ship that had lots of iron cannonballs in. Now we amazingly have quite a lot of iron in our collection and that's because it was buried under the silt so it cut off oxygen and stopped corrosion happening. But quite a bit of it did corrode because it wasn't covered straight away. And what happened then is you'll get things like iron from the iron shot, which then migrates into the wood. So you'll get some parts of wood where it can look quite orangey because it's got that kind of iron rust that's gone into it. Um, With the iron cannonballs, you have um, chlorine that's got into it from the salts in seawater. And a lot of these things, when they're first raised, they've been under the seabed in a situation where there's either no or not a lot of oxygen. And a lot of the processes that would cause the damage can't function there. So they're kind of really sealed. And then when you raise it, that's when things can start to change. And actually, when you raise it and then when you dry it, that's really the kind of key stage that then things can start to happen. And according to Eleanor, this wasn't the only challenge. And the other thing to kind of remember is, We're always basing our treatments on what we know. And typically there's still a lot that we don't know because we can't destructively test everything. My background is in material science and engineering. And if you give me a material and say, tell me what that's made of on the properties, typically I'm going to want to hack it in half. (laughs) Now, obviously, I've had to temper this a lot now working in heritage because that's not always feasible. You know, sometimes we do, but there has to be a really strong argument for it and really clear benefits. But it means that you're always making assumptions on the information that you can get. And that can be really challenging. So for some things that look okay, it's it's a bit like the, the old thing of, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, you know. So if it looks okay and it's stable, but then over time, things can change. And then that's when we have to relook at it and think, oh, right, well, actually, what is in there? And there's some things that we know for sure. So we know that the certain elements that would be in there and compounds from the seawater But then sometimes that can cross over into understanding different parts of the collection too. So it might be that I've, well, we've had in the past before where I was looking at a sample from the ship and we found something in there that I was like, oh, I wonder where that came from. And then we ended up looking at the archaeological records of the other artefacts that were found there and then potentially it came from something there. So this is where it kind of all crosses over together. And I love that. That's where it gets really interesting. I mean, it makes it very challenging because you've got all these different factors to consider, but it makes it very interesting too. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Surprisingly, many artifacts were found in relatively good condition. So the best preserved things would be things that were found inside cabins, inside chests, inside a pouch, inside a chest. And you'd find these tiny little bone dice, which are so small, you can hardly see them, let alone count you know, how many, uh, how many uh, little tiny pinpricks of, of colored dot there are on the dice. So, you know, it, it really is like going through somebody's underwear drawers. It's that, that close and, and personal when you're actually inside a cabin, inside a chest, inside a pouch, and you're looking at somebody's personal belongings and trying to work out who they were and why they've got this weird eclectic collection of things. Although many of the objects that would have been on board at the time of its sinking were lost, what remains does give us a glimpse into what may have originally been there. We have a huge collection with lots of different materials. We're really lucky with that. But of course, there are some things that wouldn't have survived. Things that immediately spring to mind are things like paper. So we do have some leather book covers. So we have an indication that there, you know, you would think would have been paper in there, but we don't have that. We also don't really have too much paint. We have a couple of textiles where there are there is some kind of colour on them, more of a dye. But if there was anything, if any of the wood was painted or things like that, we we don't have that. And that's quite difficult now with other treatments that have been done and things like that to really conclusively say whether it would have been there. So whilst we don't have paper or paintings, we do say with the paper, have the indication that it would have been there. So whilst we don't have it, we have an idea of what would have been there. Um, And like I say, we have all these other objects, which means we can still piece together lots of really interesting stories about our collection. I really think we've just kind of, you know, scratched the surface of that. Again, particularly as the way that we can look at and understand materials changes daily, crucially for heritage as well. Um, there's a lot more techniques that you can do non-destructively. So you can look at materials and understand so much without having to sample anything of it. And I think there's just so much more that we'll get to learn over the years. The conservation process is unfortunately one that demands some sacrifices. In the reserve collection of the Mary Rose Museum, Alex had pointed out to me several of the book covers Eleanor had mentioned. I had asked her if we knew where they might have come from. One of them was definitely a Bible because it's got the word of God endureth in eternity in, in Latin and by a, a famous bookbinder. But other than that, no, we don't. But you'd expect Master Gunner to have a book for all of the ratios of uh, shot and powder and gun and, and various other people to have you know, tidal calculations and things like that. They're lovely because they're made of very, very thin lasts of wood covered with leather. And then these copper alloy hinges. Again, the hinges sometimes have even got decoration on them. And when it's fresh up from the ocean, you can see the decoration, which has been sort of embossed on it really, really well. So we made a point of drawing them almost as soon as they came up and doing photography while they were wet, because you, you lose that impression when you dry it through the conservations. 
even with items that had been saved in the salvage operation and excavation. The subsequent exposure to the above-water conditions threatened their stability. In order to care for the ship and its objects, difficult considerations have to be made, and losing this book's embossed design is just one of them. We do a whole range of different conservation treatments, and given the different types of objects we're working on, there's lots of different considerations. So, for example, it might be that there is a bowl that's needs a treatment and needs some reconstruction and it's in lots of different pieces. And this takes real skill to kind of piece it back together and tease it back and even just to have the this site to think what it would have been and putting it back together. And I think often this is the type of conservation that people think about. And we do that, but we also have like right the way up to what I kind of call industrial conservation because with the ship, obviously this is a huge structure. We have cranes and cherry pickers that we use to get to it. When I first started working at the Melrose, I had to get my crane driving license, which is something I never thought I would get. Um, I mean, a, a brilliant thing to have, but I would say equally exciting and terrifying driving it next to the Mary Rose. Um, and when the ship was being conserved, a lot of the considerations were around the maintenance of the kit, delivering it and how to safely get the staff to the points where they need to be. And then also with some of the objects, you know, we, we do have small objects, but we have a lot of things like gun carriages and cannons. And you're talking about tons worth of material, you know, it's they're big and heavy. And frankly, if it isn't planned properly, really dangerous for people. So, you know, you you would think that you're constantly thinking, oh my God, the object. But when you're talking about a timber, which is, you know, really thick and, you know, meters long, actually, the main thing you're thinking about is the health and safety of the people involved and making sure they're okay. Um, so yeah, alongside the ship and the ship hull and all those things, we also have our conservation facility where we have tanks and when I say tanks, I'm talking about some of them being like 10 metres long. They take tens of thousands of litres of liquid. We have overhead gantries so we can safely move the timbers around. They have to be stropped and put in and out. We have freeze dryers, which are like six metres long. You know, it's really kind of labour intensive physical work to, to deal with these timbers. And of course, we're looking after them. But like I say, there's also a big consideration of looking after the people that are looking after them. The conservation of the Mary Rose and its objects isn't just a one-off treatment. It's a continual process. I asked Eleanor what it's like to work with such a fragile and demanding historical collection. Often the work that we're doing takes quite a lot of planning, so particularly with the ship, You'll be getting your team together, discussing what you're going to do, making sure you've got the right equipment on you and with you to do the job. Um, but you certainly still have moments where you're kind of stopped in your tracks thinking about actually what is happening. So, for example, I can really clearly remember being in the hold of the ship and walking along it to one side. We needed to get some some photos to look at how something potentially had moved. And so being right at one side, right at the stern of the ship, looking to the bow and just really having a moment of, 
this is insane. I'm sat on the Mary Rose Henry VIII ship thinking about all the people and what would have been where I was in the hold, probably lots of barrels and things like that, and just imagining what would have been happening. And then I'm there in my hard hat and steel toe cap boots with a tape measure. It's just crazy, but amazing. It's um, it's a real privilege to have this job and to be able to do what I do. And another reason why the Mary Rose is such an exciting collection to work on is because of the opportunities to inform wider studies. When the Mary Rose was raised, we looked at other projects around the world and learnt from them. And now we're one of those places that people can turn to and we're quite routinely asked by projects whether they have something that's already been raised and they're seeing changes in the materials or there is something about to be raised for our advice on the best thing to do. Sometimes we can give them a straight answer and say this worked for us. Sometimes it might be we haven't quite figured that out yet and we can all work on it together. There's a a really tight community in conservation of waterlogged archaeological materials because whilst there will be some variations in how old something is or where it was lost and maybe how it's treated, there is like a a common theme of issues that come up that we can then collectively look at and there's a really nice way that people work together in that. The other thing that we've been really lucky with our collection is that there is a lot of repetition. So for example, there are over 1200 iron cannonballs. So when we started to see issues with some of the cannonballs, we could say, right, well, let's just take a few of them, really look at them. And then what we find won't be relevant just for us. Obviously, that's a really strong driving force because we want to look after our collection. But there's also always this kind of thing of thinking, well, yeah, it'll be important for us, but actually it'll be really important information that other people can use too. So not only will it benefit this collection, but it'll benefit worldwide collections too. And again, like like I say, it's a circle that goes round. The Mary Rose benefited hugely from other people's advice, and then it's a nice way that you can give back to the field. But the motivations for salvaging and preserving the collection extend far beyond this. It's really important for us to look after the Mary Rose collection because there's so much that we can learn from it. Some of the things that I really love in our collection are the things that actually haven't changed. So you have the kind of two sides of it. So, for example, we have knit combs, which they're wooden knit combs and maybe they wouldn't be made of wood nowadays. But they're actually the same principle. It worked 500 years ago and it works now. And then obviously you have all the aspects of understanding who the people were and how they were using things. There are such rich stories there and there is so much more to learn. I just want to pick up on something that Eleanor mentioned, that caring for the Mary Rose is not just about preserving the ship, but the stories it's held for half a millennium. This is something I decided to speak to Christopher Dobbs about. The new Mary Rose Museum is very, very different to the old one because what we've done is to combine the ship and the objects together in one building. And one of the things we've done is to display the ship on one side of the museum and then display thousands of the objects exactly opposite to where they were found. So what we try to do is to give people an idea of what it would have been like Uh, walking down the decks of the Mary Rose. But um, what I've always said is that this, this museum is not about a ship. It's not even about the objects. 
it's actually about the people who lived and worked and died on that ship uh, so many years ago. And so what I hope is that people won't go home having learned something about Henry VIII. Well, they might have, but that's not the intention. The intention is that they will go home having actually felt something inside them, having actually been able to empathise with a member of the crew of the ship. Uh, just to take one example, there's one object which I think, to me, epitomises the whole museum, and that's a beautifully preserved leather shoe, uh, which you might think is, you know, why is Chris talking about a leather shoe when you've got all these treasures on board? And it's because it's been worn out by the person who owned it. So there's a hole right through it. And I don't think it's just wear. I think it's because he had a bunion or a broken foot or something. And when you see that, you can actually think about that person who wore that shoe and was perhaps suffering. And that might then lead you to think about the people who couldn't even afford shoes. And I, I think it's that ability to, to register with people from 500 years ago that is a very, very um, important part of what we've created at the May Rose through the discovery, the excavation, the raising, the creation of this new museum. There are lots of superlatives or things people have said about history, about going back in time and trying to make people feel that they're there or living history. But I think if we can go part of the way towards those superlatives and make people think about people in the 16th century and see one person's individual possessions, once you can identify with a real person, I think that's when you're really looking back into the past. I hope this series has highlighted just how much the Mary Rose has offered us in terms of uncovering the past and contributing to our wider understanding. It's helped transform the practice of underwater archaeology and has led experts to make exciting new innovations in conservation. But most of all, it's offered us an invaluable window into the Tudor period. And that's something that makes preserving the ship for future generations so vital. I think what makes the Mary Rose so important to study is that it's important in so many different ways. It's, it's the sort of holistic approach to why it's important. I mean, it, it's absolutely from this period of Tudor history, which is people are really looking into it now and is amazing, perhaps looking towards the continent and this very, very influential king. So, yes, there's all these links with Tudor history. And also, in terms of its links with Henry VIII, you know, he ordered this ship in January 1510, just after he came to the throne. And then it actually survived for 34 years until just before he died. So it was with him for his entire reign and was allegedly you know, his favourite ship. So it has all these amazing links with Henry VIII and the development of his kingship, I suppose you could call it. And also, perhaps the dark side, it's about the development of naval warfare. You know, it really was the, the development from troop ship to gunship that at the start of his reign, they were used for transporting troops out to sea and then you'd fight a land battle at sea. But through this revolutionary or perhaps evolutionary process during the lifetime of the Mary Rose, they change from fighting these land battles at sea to fighting sort of more remote battles where you're actually firing your guns. It's actually depersonalizing naval battles in a way. 
So it's very, very important for the development of, of naval warfare, but also for our knowledge of naval architecture. There are uh, no ship's plans of the period uh, or models or instructions of how to build ye shippy. We start to get them at the end of the 16th century in the Matthew Baker documents, but we don't have any from the Mary Rose's time. So everything we find out about the interior structure or the exterior structure of the ship is new stuff. But it's also important for the objects on board. I mean, that's perhaps what most visitors are so amazed about. They go there because they'll see a ship. But when they get to the Mary Rose, it's the objects that perhaps really captivate them and then the people behind them. So it's it's really important for the objects. But it's also been important for the development of maritime archaeology itself from being a very, very young discipline but even when I joined in 1979 uh, to develop all these techniques and to make the general public aware of archaeology underwater. They might not call it that now, but I think people are now aware through that outside broadcast and watching it on television that there is heritage underwater that is valuable and that it shouldn't be treated as finders keepers. So I think it raised awareness both amongst academics and the public about uh, the importance of maritime archaeology. And then it's also been um, important for the development of conservation techniques of waterlogged wood and ships and things like that. So it's a cultural icon, perhaps. And so it, it's really this multitude of aspects of importance or significance that I think makes us so important to study. And, and any individual scholar in any individual one of those areas would say it's amazing. In fact, one thing I think was amazing when one of our publications was produced about all the objects on board, they were done by essays of experts in the different types of objects because the archaeologists involved couldn't be experts on everything. And each of these experts said, you know, this collection of I don't know, boarded furniture or this collection of daggers or this collection of shoes is the most important collection we have of uh, in anywhere in the world of this period. So so it's it's this this matter that everything all aspects of the work in all areas of scholarship that you could think of are important to study uh, around the Mary Rose. We so often hear about the loss of the Mary Rose. But there is so much more to the ship than that. In this series, we've explored its long lifetime as Henry VIII's beloved warship, right up to its fatal final moments. We've been up close and personal with objects great and small, all of which have given us a greater insight into life in the 16th century. We've unearthed the crew's skeletons and examined what they can tell us. And... We've traced the incredible story of a man's mission to find the Mary Rose, right up to its preservation today. While the tragic sinking of the Mary Rose is often the most well-known part of its story, it's allowed us a closer look down so many different avenues. And this is what makes the shipwreck such an extraordinary discovery. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast series and many thanks to Christopher Dobbs, Professor Eleanor Schofields and Dr Alex Hildred for being my experts for today's episode. This podcast series was written and edited by me, Emily Briffitt and produced by Jack Bateman and Ben Ewart 
Additional checks by Daniel Adamson and Ellie Cawthorn. <laughs>